Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You're a magician, not a wizard. Look, Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tandler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, Disney Plus just showed a performance of Hamilton by the original Broadway cast. Would you like to take this moment to apologize to Lin-Manuel Miranda? <laughs> I, as, as our most loyal listeners will know, I've been a member of Disney Plus uh, since its launch. And so I thought to myself... I'll, I'll give this a shot. I'll give this a shot. This gets, you know, people are paying what, like $10,000 a ticket to see this. This must be, this must be better than like, you know, head by an angel. And so, so I played it and I was watching it with, uh, Nikki and with my daughter and, um, about 45 minutes in, I, I couldn't, I couldn't anymore. It was just so bad. It was just so <laughs> terrible. It was so Was so the hip hop too hard for you? Was it like, <laughs> It was I think there was a moment where they started that courtship thing with the Skylar sisters and they start like trying to be like, you know, like booty liking like R and B type rap and I was just like, Oh, this is just terrible. <laughs> so you didn't finish it? No, I never finished it. Like, was it too diverse for you? Did you not like that it wasn't all white people playing? <laughs> yeah, that was that. At least the French guy had a French accent. <laughs> that guy is great, by the way, David Diggs, who's apparently yeah. a rapper, but I didn't know that. Oh, is he? You know what would have helped me? What? If I had yelled fuck throughout the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, so on today's episode, we're going to devote the whole episode to the Harper's letter. Uh, No, we're not going to talk about that. We're actually going to go a little old school today and talk about a classic paper in the free will literature, the kind of resurgence that happened in the 50s, but mostly in the 60s and 70s. And and the paper we're going to talk about is by Harry Frankfurt, um, Freedom of the Will and the Concept of a Person. So we're going to dive deep into the, the, a real philosophy paper. Yeah, the the very same Frankfurt of the bullshit article that we I, I had forgotten when we did the, when we decided on this paper that we had just done something by Frankfurt. I had to- totally the same. Yeah. I completely. To me they're two different like people. Yeah, I agree. Like they're or at least minds or authors. Like I don't hear the voice of this guy in that other totally, <laughs> that yeah. quote unquote book. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, apparently all we do is talk about Harry Frankfurt now, so. Yeah, first what I alluded to, which was 
I know it'd been a while since we had just done a study um, as an intro segment, and and here's a study that that uh, caught my attention because because I actually think that it captures something uh, interesting um, about the act of swearing, and maybe it's just my my particular fondness for the, the swearing that's in a motivated way making me want uh, to believe these findings. But the findings come uh, from a recent paper published in Frontiers in Psychology by Richard Stevens and Ollie Robertson. And it's called Swearing as a Response to Pain, Assessing Hypoalgesic Effects of Novel Swear Words. So I guess that it's like just known that swear words have uh, these pain-reducing effects. Um, although I don't know if it was known to me. It doesn't surprise me, right? Like that, Like with the ice bucket challenge, if you do it and then... And you're just like, fuck, 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 (laughs) fuck. Like, that's going to feel better than if you don't say anything. Or if you say kittens, kittens, puppies, puppies. (laughs) Which is interesting because obviously these are completely arbitrary words. But there's been other work showing, you know, that like these completely arbitrary curse words are uh, emotionally arousing in the way that common sense would predict but when you learn swear words in a second language, they're not as emotionally arousing. It's something about being exposed to them in your first language that gives them this, this emotional power. So um, these researchers wanted to both replicate those findings that swearing actually reduces the effects of pain. And they did something like the Ice Bucket Challenge. This is something that's come up a bunch before in on this podcast, but they basically, it's called a cold presser task. And you submerge your arm into a bucket of ice water that is temperature controlled. They use Celsius, I don't know, three to five Celsius. So not quite freezing, um, but right at the point of freezing. And this has been used as a measure of pain, pain tolerance and pain threshold. And generally what they do, you, you can do a lot of things. You can measure things like heart rate. But the, for, the interesting part for this is just see how long can you hold it in there until it starts to hurt. And so when it starts to hurt, you say, ow, this, this shit is hurting. And then that's what they call a pain threshold. And then how long can you keep it in, keep your arm in after it starts to hurt? So that that measure of time is a measure of your pain tolerance. Um, if, I don't know if, ever, if listeners have done this or Tamler, if you've done this, it hurts. It actually really hurts. Um, I would be swearing. But what they were interested in was whether these are the kinds of studies where it's like, did anybody really believe that this would be the alternative explica- explanation? So they chose, they wanted to know what it was specifically about the word fuck or a swear word that was doing the work. And so... Wait, so to be clear, people who swear as they're doing it, who say fuck, um, are able to keep it in longer and, <laughs> <laughs> and um, also the pain threshold. I guess it, started, it starts hurting uh, less. So yeah, I think that was just uh, an already finding. So they brought a bunch of uh, participants in and they had them do that, the submerge their arm, their non-dominant arm into the ice water. They gave them a bunch of measures that I don't think are interesting to talk about, but they had their these these primary measures of pain threshold and pain tolerance and they had people randomly either say the word fuck. Um they had a, a 
a different condition where they had a neutral word that was just a word used to describe a table. The participant could choose whichever word they wanted to describe a table. And then they had two invented swear words. Uh, one was fouch, and the other one was twiz pipe. And the best part about this is that they hired an advertising agency <laughs> to come up with two words because they wanted to tease apart these two possible explanations. One was that it's just distracting you. Like maybe it's just saying fuck. It's not that it's the swear word that's doing the, the analgesic thing. It's just that you're distracting yourself. The other possibility is that it might just be um, emotionally arousing. Team or word. funny. No, I think funny. Or funny. Yeah, right. A humorous word. Right. So everybody, I guess, crucially, everybody did this four times. It's just that w w what order they did it in was randomly uh, decided. And what they found was when they were using the F word, um, their tolerance for pain and their threshold for pain. Why are you saying the F actually, word when? Uh, oh, because yeah, it's in the article. Fuck. When they say fuck, this actually. <laughs> Especially when there's two F words in question. <laughs> that's right. Fouch. Uh, I just want to read this part. The new swear words, the new swear were generated by an agency working for Neurofen. They were selected for the experiment by a panel consisting of a lead author, a lexicographer, an independent scientist, and an ex with expertise in swearing, and two lay members. I want to be that independent scientist with expertise in swearing. But what I, what does it mean that it's a made up swear word rather than just a made up word? They call it a made up swear word or a made up curse word. Uh, fouch or twiz pipe, but in what sense is that uh, a swear? I think word? that I think it's just that, a word. Um, I think that could, it cannot be a swear word. I think a, you cannot make up a swear word. I mean, they call it a made-up swear word. I know, I know. Yeah. So they say the new swear words were selected. Um, they give the name of the science writer who wrote a book called "Why Swearing Is Good for You," and so they had a two-hour meeting with a list of 60 candidate new swear words created by an advertising agency. Unsuitable words were discarded until two remained. A steer was provided that one of the new swear words should carry emotional resonance while the other should offer distraction, possibly via humor. So, uh, Fouch was intended to invoke emotion and Twiz Pipe as a new swear was intended to invoke distraction via humor. They didn't work that way, so it doesn't even really matter. Like it's, it's so how how was Fouch uh, emotion provoking? <laughs> this is <laughs> it was a two hour meeting <laughs> with a panel of people <laughs> who just discussed which ones would be. Maybe they thought it sounded like Felch. <laughs> Like, that's the only that way you can make it. a... Yeah, <laughs> that would rouse an emotion, I guess. If <laughs> I, I don't know. But I mean, like, that's the... That's the the whole point of this article depends on Fouch um, evoking an emotion and being... Now, I guess they rated it? Yeah. So actual participants rated all four for how emotional they were for how humorous they were and for how distracting they were. But if you and were asked to rate how emotional Fouch was, would how would you understand that question? <laughs> how emotion arousing? How emotion was? arousing, yeah. I mean, it, it, they say emotional, but yeah, how emotion arousing. Like, I don't know the actual question. I, I'm mildly amused. 
So I would give it like a, on a, on a hundred point scale, I would say like 10, you made me think that it's kind of funny that you made up a new word. Twist pipe is a little funny. Like I would say that's a little funny. Right. But it's not a question of how funny it is because that's the second one. That's the second word, twist pipe. It's a question. Well, they had, they had every word rated on every, on either emotion, human. So what they wanted to, what they wanted to see was that it, Fouch was more emotional and twist pipe was more humorous. And both of these would be so more than the neutral term. I think that all they really got action on was that fuck was different from neutral. Fuck was different from everything. So like basically they're refinding the finding that fuck is is pain reducing. But they don't know why. They don't know why. It doesn't seem as if the um, when you take the ratings, it doesn't seem as if the distraction ratings or the humor ratings were doing any of the work to like reduce the pain tolerance. It's, so their conclusion is this is the first study to show that new made up swear words do not, do not have similar pain alleviation effects to regular swear. All we know is this adds into the, remember I'm always saying that slowly by slowly, study by study, we're going to add to knowledge. This is just another one justifying the use of the word fuck whenever, whenever you're in pain. This seems like a study, Think like if the goal was to just re refine, like replicate essentially the effect that saying fuck seems to, you know, help when it comes to pain tolerance and pain thresholds, then I guess that's fine. But it that's not what they um, set That's not out what they do. set out at all. So they, they set out to find something that they didn't find, which is good. And they published this in Frontiers in Psychology, which is great. Like it's better than this kind of publication, I think, is better than just publishing it when it works. Like this is showing us that at the very least, Fouch and Twizpipe and the money they paid the advertising agency to come up with, with these words do not make a difference. Yeah. Although one could argue it's a null result. There were 92 participants total. Yeah. Each of them did it four times. So so it's like 92 times four. You know, yeah, still, there are always questions. I, all I'm saying is... There's the jury is still out on whether Fouch or Twizpipe will work. <laughs> Twiz, let's try it. I mean, I feel like this is where real descriptive data is necessary. So next time I like bang my foot on the on the corner of my table, I'm just gonna say Twizpipe. I think <laughs> this is one where we need an interview. No, so in that sense, I think you're right that you know it's good that they published a null finding, something that they tried to find but didn't find. Nicely alongside like a replication. Yeah. The thing that is maybe not as admirable is just why would they think? Why, like the way they set it up, it's like they're trying to give support to one of two different hypotheses or models. It's not at all clear that Fouch is more emotion arousing, arousing than Twizpipe, even though people rated it that way. But who the fuck? Like I w- honestly would have no idea what they were talking about if they asked me to rate or emotion arousing properties of of fout i think that says nothing and then twiz and it's so close to fuck too like it's like a little too in german it might might sound like fuck right you know yeah or twiz pipe is longer and it sounds like a twizzler and a pipe like yeah twiz pipe is kind of funny i guess (laughs) but i still feel so i i think that there's there's something just fundamentally misconceived about if they had some sort of positive finding, maybe that's the best way to put it. If they had found that, say, you know, Fouch 
works almost as well as fuck, if not quite as well, I wouldn't think, oh, it must be emotion arousing rather than, you know, distraction that explains this or vice versa. Even if the Fouch, even if Fouch was judged by everybody to be as emotion arousing as fuck. Yes, because I don't, I think that's a meaningless question. It's unclear to me what the hypothesis is. Like, I believe this finding, like, both from the literature and from myself. Like, if I say fuck, like, it feels better. But I'm not clear what the explanation could be, like, as to why that works. I, I know there must be an explanation. Maybe the explanation is physiological. But I'm not sure what's going on that makes it feel much better to say fuck. There, there is something about the, the taboo nature of the word that really does feel like it's reducing my pain. And I don't, I, I don't, I wouldn't know how to test whether it's just distraction. Because like, if you had, like, I think a real test of distraction would be if I stub my toe real bad, which is the levels of pain that I'm accustomed to that would make me yell fuck. Stub my toe real bad and then have my daughter walk in saying curse words in Spanish. Like that's a distraction. Like would that distraction make it hurt less? I don't know, but that's the kind, you know, I can see why they're trying to control for everything, including even like the length of the word and, you know, like the, the, the fact that they're making the utterance while they're doing it. But, but a real distraction ought to be like someone pops out of the back room and goes, boo. <laughs> yeah. It's great that it was published, even though they didn't get what they wanted to find, but had they gotten it, I, I, I like, I, I think it's just sort of misconceived to think oh, then we have isolated the factor that causes us to, you know, reduce the pain or, or increase the pain threshold and our to- and the tolerance. Okay, I got it. I understand now, finally. Yeah. See, hear me out. Yes. Um, we use a cold presser task and we give people random words, just shit tons of random words. And the ones that happen to reduce pain... Uh, we call those ontologically swear words. And we act as if it's a process of discovery, like evolution. Through time, people discovered that the sound fuck actually made them feel better. So there's just a whole bunch of words that we haven't figured out yet. They've only tested two. This is like a... They're out there. Yeah. (laughs) We just have to run this study, but with just every other combination of letters until we find (laughs) the other ones, like the magic ones. It's It's like Borges, like the... (laughs) <laughs> the uh, library of Babel. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that I guess the way that this was approached sort of maybe makes assumptions about how you can isolate certain properties based on certain measures. So if I was going to be a, like a pain in the ass, I would question <laughs> how that how that works. But I'm not going to because, you know, it's Good. fun. It's, it's fun. Like it, I think like the, I, here's where I think, okay, like in, in all seriousness, like I think it's a nice result that you can get people to do this longer when they say fuck, right? Yeah, right. It's a nice behavioral result. I think that's probably the best you're going to do. But if you're going to do any better than that in trying to figure out why, I wouldn't think this was the way to do it. Here's what I would do since you got all serious. I would like to do something like idiosyncratic words because um, that is words that are that are meaningful idiosyncratically. So so rather than try to generate novel words, which is a task that people do in a whole bunch of these cognitive studies, 
But you can, if you really want to know whether a word, it's the emotional aspect of the word that is doing the pain reduction or the distraction one, you could just ask people to list words that aren't swear words, but that make them feel strong emotions. And so you could dump your hand in the ice water and Tamler, you could be yelling conceptual analysis, conceptual analysis, conceptual analysis, like, and see if that works for you. And right. You could be well, like Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to go with Jews, but <laughs> Jews, yeah, <that> was, <laughs> diversity, <laughs> free speech. Um, but I think that would be an um, interesting test. It just would require a whole lot of people. Buying little girls princess dresses. <laughs> That's a throwback to episode <laughs> whatever forty something, and a throw forward to when we do a uh, a commentary a on that track. All right, let's move on. Yes, let's move on. All right, when we come back, speaking of throwbacks, um, we're going to talk about free will and talk about a classic paper on free will. We'll be right back. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is sponsored by BetterHelp. We're very proud to have them as a return sponsor. What if you could have access to a counselor 24 hours a day, somebody to actually help you, somebody who would be a professional, who could give you the right kind of advice, who wouldn't be involved in your life in any other manner than to help you achieve your goals or work through your problems? Well, that's what BetterHelp does. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist. They'll allow you to connect in a safe and private online environment. And once you sign up, you'll be up and running and able to communicate with a therapist in under 24 hours. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses from them, and you can schedule weekly video or phone therapy sessions. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free of charge to change counselors if needed, because let's be honest, it's not always a great match. You need to find a counselor that works for you. BetterHelp is available worldwide across all 50 states in the United States, and they are adding people. They are continually adding counselors across all 50 states because of the demand that they've seen. There's a broad range of expertise available that may be available locally in your area to deal with things like depression or stress or anxiety, sleeping problems, trauma, anger, grief, even self-esteem. So if you want to start making a change, living a happier life, living a life in which you can achieve your goals, or maybe living a life where you can escape the misery that is quarantine in so many parts of the world, as a listener, when you sign up, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash VBW. Once again, that's betterhelp.com slash VBW. Join over 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. <laughs> Thank you.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time where we um, always like to thank our listeners for all the different ways you get in touch with us, um, uh, emailing us, tweeting us, uh, participating in the conversations on Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, uh, rating us on Apple Podcasts, which we always love for the most part. Uh, <laughs> unless you have a B in your Take bonnet. A little, a little dip. <laughs> a little dip. <laughs> yeah. About our remarks on cancel culture. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can uh, email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet at us, at Tamler, at Peas, at verybadwizards. And you can join the conversation, the lively these days conversation. I can't keep up with it on Reddit. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, and again, rate us on Apple Podcasts, but maybe not just focused on this one fucking opening segment that we had. Although, actually, just do that, too. Whatever. We love, we love, we love the ratings. I, I, I like honest ratings. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you want to support us in more tangible ways, there's one easy way you can do it, and that is to go to our website, verybadwizards.com, and there, there will be at the menu up top, a support tab. Um, and there you will get links to our Patreon. So if you would like to support us in a regular fashion um, by donating a few dollars a month to our cause, we'd very, very, very much appreciate that. That uh, you could go directly, in fact, to patreon.com uh, slash verybadwizards. And we have something coming up. We have Dark. We just finished recording a bonus episode. Uh, about Dark with Yoel Imbar. So that should be up soon for our Patreon supporters. Yeah, it'll be up uh, by the time this releases for sure. Okay, good. Um, if you prefer to use PayPal instead of Patreon, you can go directly and do a either one-time or a recurring donation via PayPal. We very much appreciate, appreciate that too. And as we mentioned last time, we have a brand new t-shirt or set of t-shirts, sweatshirts, and hoodies. And if you go to our website and just Right next to the support page, you can click merchandise, and that will take you to our Cotton Bureau page. And there you can pick from T-shirts for men, women, youth of a couple of different colors. I, I'm actually literally wearing mine because I love it. It's nice and soft, high quality. I just Tamler. got mine too. It's awesome. I love it. Yeah. So we're very, very happy with how these came out. So you can support us that way and represent walking around with a couple of uh monkeys staring at each other which i take it represent us i take it yeah but that's the thing is that people won't know which is good because i feel like i can wear this t-shirt and not feel like a total douche were you like that did you wear the other very bad wizards where i don't think i once wore it out i never wore it out i i gave them out to a bunch of my friends but i can't i couldn't wear a t-shirt that said very bad wizards i would be like wearing a t-shirt that said david pizarro on it which, like, if I'm at camp or something, like, and they need to identify me. <laughs> anyway, uh, yes, thank you. Yes, everybody. we thank you very much for all of your support in all of those different ways. We appreciate it. Um, so we are going to talk about Harry Frankfurt's freedom of the will and the concept of a person. This is a classic paper, like in the true sense of classic, certainly for the free will moral responsibility literature. It has been cited 5,284 times. All I really care about is citations, so that's pretty impressive. But it also, it, it, it kind of set the groundwork for one type of compatibilism about free will, meaning that you could be free, according to Frankfurt's account, that you could have free will 
in a determined world. So even if everything is determined, you can still have free will if what Frankfurt says is free will really is free will. Now, in the past, we've said that the the debate over whether something is free will rather than some other kind of freedom or capacity is not that interesting. And I still believe that. However, what this paper does, I think, really effectively is point out uh, a lot of different ways in which you can be free and distinguish between them in meaningful ways. And in that way, I think ha- the, this paper's influence, which is massive, is, is, re- is pretty well deserved. It really did, in a fairly clear way, outline different conceptions of freedom and the difference of in significance to them. Whether in the end you're comfortable calling that free will or not is less interesting to me, but I think the other stuff is what's really important. And you also, right? Like you have some history with this paper because your dissertation was... Yeah, I love it. You know, yeah. Um, I hadn't read this in a while and I remembered why I really liked it. It It's... Sort of like with Strawson, um, which we bonded over, I think, early on in our in our uh, intellectual relationship, Tamler, you and I. Um, Is that what you call it? Yeah, <laughs> whatever euphemism. Uh, there's something that he gets right about the psychology, I think, of how we judge others. So when I was doing my dissertation, I relied heavily on this sort of hierarchical view of the will because it captures... Uh, I think, a way in which we actually judge other people, right? Not by, and we'll get into this, not always by their, what we might call their first order desires or impulses um, or wants, but rather by what they want to want, their second order desires. Now, whether or not this is a good way to be a compatibilist uh, about determinism and free will, that, that was never something that I gave that much thought to when I was reading him the first time because I was using it to solve a puzzle um, in attribution, moral attribution. But since you have a background in free will, I was curious to know whether or not this kind of compatibilism was satisfying to, like, to the field. Well, I think it was... It was influential, whether it was satisfying. I think people did a lot of variants on it, like Gary Watson, who brought in values in addition to desires as being central to free will, but still in a compatibilist way. It's a different kind of approach to freedom, really different in kind than Strawson's approach, which I currently favor. Again, when I, I'm coming at this from fresh eyes. When I first was interested in this topic, I was always coming at it from the perspective of, is this enough for moral responsibility? And at the time, I didn't find, you know, I was a skeptic about free will, and I didn't find that this account could give you what you needed for moral responsibility for reasons maybe that we will get to. What I was surprised at in in looking at this, and I haven't really looked at it in a long time because I haven't even taught this topic in a long time, never mind written on it, it's not really about moral responsibility. There's a there's a little uh, few pages at the end where right. he he brings moral responsibility into it, but it's just it's really about f- free will or different kinds of freedom. 
And so in that sense, I think it was nice to go back to it with fresh eyes. And I'm sure that when I go back and look at, if I ever went back and look at some of my work, my work would have assumed that this was supposed to do more for moral responsibility than it's actually trying to do. Now, having said that, I do think what it does say about moral responsibility is not satisfying even to me now. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's my take on that. So um, b- before we jump into the, the meat of the argument, this came out before his uh, principle no. of alternate possibilities? No, it came out or, after. Three it years came out after. after. Yeah. Uh, okay. okay. Uh, the oh, alternate yeah, right. possibilities paper is 68. This is 71. All right. Yeah. yeah. Both in the Journal of Philosophy. So he starts out, let's just go through it, I think. Yeah. Um, he starts out talking about a distinction between persons and non-persons or if we or human beings most human beings and non-human animals he says here's one difference um other animals like our dogs can have uh, desires and they can act on them um and they can choose to do something or choose not to do something. Uh, a lot of animals can do that. You know, dogs, for sure, they can choose to do something and not choose to do something. I always remember my dog, Tessie, who would just hover over a pile of deer shit and kind of <laughs> bend her shoulder. She knew we hated when she rolled in deer shit. And she would think about it. But ultimately, the deer shit desire was so strong that she just rolled around in it, even though she was going to get yelled at. She knew she was going to get yelled at. That's why she was even deciding and then still did it, you know. So we can all do that. What what we can't all do, or at least what, according to Frankfurt, other animals can't do is reflect on those desires and think about which of these desires do I want to have? Which of them do I, I not want to have? Which do I wish I didn't have? Right. So Tess, Tessie, my dog at the time, she couldn't think, do I want to have the desire to roll in deer shit? I wish I didn't have that desire. Or maybe, no, I'm glad I have that desire to roll in deer shit. I'm a deer shit dog. Let's just, I'm just going to embrace my deer shitness. I identify with uh, that desire to roll in deer shit. So, so that's something we can do. And Frankfurt points out that uh, other, other creatures can't. Um, So like, here's an example for me. Usually when I sit down to read, I have a desire to get a drink when I'm reading. Like this is almost like automatic pathway in my brain right now. So like when we're reading Dostoevsky, I was like, wait, I should have a drink right now. I should have a bourbon. Um, Vodka. (laughs) Yeah. But maybe vodka, I guess, would be more appropriate. But maybe I want to cut down on my drinking. And so I can think about whether I don't want to have that desire anymore. It's that capacity that, according to Frankfurt, is essential to, to... it's necessary. It's not necessary. It's not sufficient, but it's at least you need that if you're going to be a person, the ability to reflect on your desires and to think uh, and, and also to either want to have them or not to want to have them. And this is a capacity that also forms the basis of having uh, eventually freedom of the will with respect to certain actions and desires and not having it. So that's the first distinction, but the uh, and, uh, maybe in a important second distinction here is between a person's desire and his or her will. So Frankfurt notes that um, we often have conflicting desires. 
And then when we have conflicting desires, one of them wins out. That desire actually motivates me. So if I, I, I might have a desire to have a drink while I'm reading and also a desire to just read without drinking, right? But if I end up pouring myself a drink, then that desire wins. That's my, what he calls my effective desire. And that's my will. That is identical to my will, according to Frankfurt. It's not necessarily a free will, but it's a will. So that's what separates a will from a desire is the will is the desire that motivates you to act. Right. Because at any given instant, we could have a whole bunch of wants or desires and a lot of them might conflict, but they're conflicting at this lower level. So, you know, you made me think of my dog every night to distract him from trying to eat our food. um, We give him a treat. But Nikki actually holds out two treats that she knows he likes. And every night it's a hilarious thing to make him like look back and forth, look back and forth and try to decide because they're both treats we, we know he likes. Um, the one that he picks out is the desire, you know, the desire that he acted on was his will, his will to have that bone. Yes, right. So you like a burden's ass you're trying to like, <laughs> Exactly. He's like a burden's ass. And, yeah. and a burden's, a burden's ass who gets paralyzed is somebody who is, is a, a, an agent without will. Right. But desires. They have desires to go to both bales of hay, but no will at that point. So now we're, while we're at the higher level of reflecting on our desires, we can also reflect on what we want our wills to be, or in other words, what we want our effective desires to be. So here's another example I was thinking of. So you, you take an older guy maybe who finds himself attracted to the younger people who work in his job at his office. Uh, he has these desires to have affairs with them or have sex with them if he can. But then he also has desires to be faithful to his wife, to not fuck up his family life and to not fuck up his job. Yeah, come on, which come on, Tabler. Do. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> this is not autobiographical. Uh, he may, so here's the distinction I want to bring up though, right? Like you could think of this two ways, right? This could be two different kinds of ways the person could handle the fact that he has these conflicting desires at the first order, right? He may just want to get rid of the desires to be with younger women, right? Like, like a pedophile might just not want to be attracted to children at all, right? right. Um, or he might be fine with having the desires for younger women, Right. Like he's like, oh, it keeps me young. It keeps me alive or whatever. But he doesn't want them to be effective. Like he doesn't want to fuck up his family life. That's a more important desire. So it's not that he wants to not have desires that he have that he that he has. He's fine with having those desires. It's just that at the higher level, he doesn't want those desires to ever cause him to act in a way that is detrimental to other things that he Uh, that he wants. So according to Frankfurt, he would have a second order volition, uh, volition with respect to this would be the one to be faithful, that the desire to be faithful, to not fuck up his family life. That's the one that he wants to, even if he's fine with having those other desires, that's the one he always wants to be effective. That is, according to Frankfurt, a second order volition. And these are what is connected to freedom of the will, according to Frankfurt. So it's not just the second order desires. It's the second order volitions that are connected to freedom of the will. Right. This is the example that he gives of the doctor who wants to know what it's like to have drug, drug addiction cravings, right? 
where it's just similar in structure, in structure to what you just said, but basically the doctor's like, I wonder what it's like to be a serious addict. And so he's having this second order desire to have the pull of addiction while at the same time not wanting that pull of addiction to actually be effective. This is what I like about this hierarchical will. The way that he's structuring this lends for a nice analysis of the kinds of psychological situations that we can easily see in ourselves and in others. I think it's very keen, yeah. a very keen observation. Absolutely. Now, this w- the reason I didn't use that example and I came up with my own is that seems like such a far-fetched example. It's this... It's this like guy who works on addiction who wants to understand addiction and so really wants to have the desire. But I, I think these kinds of this distinction between second order volitions and second order desires is actually pretty common. Like there's plenty of desires that I don't mind having as long as they're not effective. You know, as long right. as they're not actually making me do something that conflicts with other first order desires that are stronger. You know, right. and so it is a big difference to either not want to, I, I don't mind wanting to have a drink when I'm reading. I would like though sometimes for me to like have the effective desire be the one that is just to drink, to read without drinking. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. And I think that's a really, this is one of my favorite distinctions in the essay is this distinction between like the sec, cause I think like this gets lost sometimes in hierarchical accounts. Um, they think either you want the desire or you don't, but it's not that simple. It's like, it's which of your desires do you want to be effective? That's right. Yeah. Because you could, yeah, just to add to that, you could definitely even, it could be part of your identity that you really like having the desire to drink bourbon and you know all kinds of bourbon. You just know you're an alcoholic and you need to keep that in check. But it's not as if you have a second order desire to, to just be a teetotaler. By the way, as we get into this, maybe I'll bring it up. This There's a lot in here that kind of reminds me of Freud's analysis of the, of the self because they're both fundamentally questions about what makes a person a whole person. And there were times when I was like, oh, like Freud has language that sounds almost exactly like like the conflict between the superego and the id and, and the ego just being sort of driven by whatever reality lets it have. <laughs> right. I mean, the difference is that for Freud, the superego isn't really determined right by the person. It's more determined by like the... It's all, for Freud, it's all just like what he called biology is destiny. Like the, the developmental forces that shaped you early on will determine all of this stuff. So then Frankfurt goes into this whole thing about the, the wanton, which I don't know if you want to talk about it. It's, it seems like it gets, it, it has been picked up in a lot of the secondary stuff about this, but I'm not sure if it's, if it's worth talking about it, certainly at the length that he talks about it. But the general idea is it, it's somebody that just doesn't care which of his or her first order desires are effective. So they, they might have second-order desires, they might not, but what they absolutely lack is any preference as to which of their desires um, determine their actions. So I, I, like, I like the wanton, and uh, the reason I like the description of the wanton is that I think it captures at least, at least my observation of some people. 
Um, and this often happens in a TV show where you're trying to determine whether a person is, is say, a good person. Like, are they, are they really wanting to help or are they a bad person? Are they somebody who's driven by selfishness? And you see them do both things. You see them act in ways that make them seem good and ways that make them seem bad. And you realize that they are just simply being driven by whatever local desires are pulling them. And sort of if, if they have empathy for the person in front of them, they you know, won't kill them or, or will help them. Um, and if not, they'll do some bad shit. It's just, it's, it's driven solely by these lower level desires and the strength with which one is elicited in any given situation. They walk around living their life being pulled by these first order desires. And I think that captures something interesting about a person. Maybe it's a caricature of a person because most people are probably reflective, but there's at least large chunks of my life where I could describe my actions, my daily actions, as sort of wanton, the, the actions of a wanton person. Yeah. Like he doesn't seem to use it as a description of parts of our life. And it's so extreme that this person just never even thinks about, you know, even if they might have second order desires, like I want this or I don't, I want to want this. I don't want to want that. I wish I didn't want that. They just never have any preference as to which of their desires determine their action. It's so extreme that it's, as, as Frankfurt says, for him, the wanton isn't a person. They're like animals. Like he says, all animals are wantons. They don't because they don't, because they're not at any higher order level at all. But then, you know, even a, if there was a human being like what you're talking about. But I, I do think it's more useful to talk about them in terms of just so much of our everyday life is like that, where we don't even really think about whether we want which of our desires we want to be effective. Like we can sleepwalk through life in a lot, you know, in, in large chunks of it and and not be reflective about, you know, whether that's. Uh, how we want to live or not. And, and he makes an interesting point about being a wanton doesn't mean that you're not deliberating. So you can have rational faculties and you can actually um, determine which of your first order desires you, you want to, to win out. But it's not... Well, no, I don't think you can do that. What does he say is, it does not mean that each of his first order desires is translated heedlessly and at once into action. He may have no opportunity to act in accordance with some of his desires. Moreover, the translation of his desires into action may be delayed or precluded either by conflicting desires of the first order or by the intervention of deliberation. For a wanton may possess and employ rational faculties of a higher order. Nothing in the concept of a wanton implies that he cannot reason or that he cannot deliberate concerning how to do what he wants to do. What distinguishes the rational wanton from other rational agents is that he is not concerned with the desirability of his desires themselves. He ignores the question of what his will is to be. So that separates them from the animals and that they can have like some sort of deliberation between these low-level desires. They're just not connecting them to anything like their second order, their will, like what, what they want to want. Or what they want to be effective. Uh, which of their desires they want to be effective. Right. So he, he uses it as a contrast with the unwilling addict. So you take somebody who's addicted to, say, cocaine, wants to do coke whenever they see it, but maybe they don't want the desires to do coke to be effective. Right. Now, again, it could be that the, this addict is fine with having the desires, 
but he doesn't want them to overwhelm all his other desires like it currently does, or it could be that they just don't want the desire at all. Either way, what they really, their volition is they don't want, because it's fucking up their life, they don't want the desire to do coke to be effective, to actually make them do it because they are, they're trying to quit. And what Frankfurt says is that this unwilling addict, this person identifies uh, himself, again, this could be herself, he always uses him, this was pre- Pre uh, your, you know, woke. Uh, a lot of things have changed. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but this, this, this person identifies himself with the second order, with, uh, with their second order volition, not wanting to desires to do like an eight ball every night to be effective. I guess that would be a lot. So this, th- when I was reading this, I thought to myself that Bubs in The Wire has a, a nice there are there are times in which he's clearly the unwilling addict but like there are long periods of time where he's just a wanton and and bubs at his worst when he's a heroin addict and he doesn't seem to care he doesn't seem to be influenced by any second order desire to be a heroin addict or not he just kind of wants the drug he uses his rational faculties to obtain the drug quite often, like he strips copper from buildings and, and um, it just never, occur, it never occurs to him to consider, as Frankfurt says, whether he wants the relations among his desires to result in his having the will he has. Every once in a while, Bubs actually uh, has that, that second order desire kick in and he feels guilt and he wishes that he wasn't what he is, right? I guess the question that I would ask there is, is he being a wanton in those periods or is he being a willing addict, which is the distinction he introduces at the end, which is somebody who has reflected on their desires and decided, I want to have the desire to do heroin. And so I'm going to take these steps to, to carry that out, um, like, like strip copper or whatever. The, so I don't, I don't know if it's totally clear from... Bob, this is Bubbles from The Wire, the heroin addict, as, as Dave said. Is he just a wanton where he, has, where he never reflects on whether this is a good or bad desire? I, I don't think so. He's a thoughtful guy. Uh, he's, he's definitely a reflective person in other ways, even during those periods. So I guess, I, yeah, I would think maybe in those times he's more of a willing addict or, you know, some combination of a willing and unwilling addict, you know. The wanton is just weird. Like, they just never care. You know, I guess I, like, I resonate with that. Uh, like, I, I feel like I see wantonness in people um, in the way they're just pulled by whatever. They just don't care. And I think it, maybe not in bubbles, but in some addicts, it seems that they are solely driven by first order uh, desires that they can often rationally deliberate about, but they don't seem like maybe when pushed, they would say, well, of course I don't want to be an addict, but, but you're like, wait, but then how come that hasn't connected to your first order uh, desires in the way that it ought to? It's interesting. Uh, maybe the train spotting guys in the, at least the first half of the movie are like that, right? They're, they're just being led around by it and they're just not thinking at a, a higher level. One of the things that Frankfurt doesn't do. This will be important when it comes to finally getting to what free will is, but he doesn't separate between individual cases of acting according to your own free will or and just having free will or individual cases of being a wanton 
which are plenty, and just being a wanton. And it seems like when he's talking about the wanton right now uh, in, the, in this paper, at least the way I read it this time, it's like the wanton is like this almost because of just they're wired that way for all of their desires. And even Bubbles, if he's wanton, if you're right that he's a wanton when it comes to heroin, he's not a wanton when it comes to other things, you know? And so he's not a wanton. He's just wanton with respect to heroin. And I think this is a, a, a similar tension when we get to like what's an act of free will versus somebody who, who has free will. Um, actually, do you want to get to his description? Yeah, let's l- let's do that because I also n- noted that um, usually free will is talked about as sort of this metaphysical thing that you have or you don't, and and on this analysis, it really does seem like Frankfurt is saying certain actions are free and certain actions are not, and maybe people with the biology of a human are capable of having free actions, but that's not to say that you know, they all are free and maybe, yeah. Yeah. There's a difference between asking whether you have the capacity to act according to your own free will and whether did you do this of your own free will for this specific instance. Now, obviously I guess this, the latter presumes the former, but he often, he, he pretty much almost exclusively talks about it in terms of, you know, individual actions well, I, or at least maybe he does. Let's, let's see. So here's what he says. It seems, this is on page 15 if he, from the PDF. It seems to me both natural and useful to construe the question of whether a person's will is free in close analogy to the question of whether an agent enjoys freedom of action. Now, freedom of action is roughly the freedom to do what, what, what one wants to do. Analogously, then, the statement that a person enjoys freedom of the will means, also roughly, that he is free to want what he wants to want. He's free to want what he wants to want. More precisely, it means that he is free to will what he wants to will or to have the will he wants. This is like a Dr. Seuss uh, thing. (laughs) (laughs) He's just, there he's just saying, just for my sanity's sake, he's just saying it's a person who can choose what second order desires they they No, a person who can choose what second order volition. Volitions, sorry, yeah, yeah, volition. Uh, It it means that he is, I think the, the, it's free to have the will that he wants. And so just as the question about the freedom of an agent's action has to do with whether it is the action he wants to perform, so the question of freedom of his will has to do with whether it is the will that he wants to have. So like the the unwilling addict doesn't have free will, according to this account, when it comes to, say, doing cocaine or heroin, because they can't have the will that they want to have. So the will is at the first order. They want to have, he wants to have the will, the effective desire be the one to refrain from, from doing coke. And he doesn't have that, even though it's what he wants, you know, in the same way that like free action, if I want to drink water, but I can't, then I'm not free to drink water in the sense that I don't have freedom of action. If even though I want it to be part of, uh, my will that I don't have a drink when I'm reading, but I can't do it. I can't have that will. I'm always getting a drink, even though it's not the will I want to have, then 
uh, I don't have free will with respect to that. It obviously doesn't mean I don't ever have free will. It just means I don't have free will with respect to drinking and reading. I hope that makes sense to listeners. <laughs> you shouldn't have been drinking so much while you were reading. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, so you might think of this as trying to figure out whether somebody acted according to their own free will, which is the way people talk. Did they do this of their own free will? And according to Frankfurt, if it was the will that they wanted to have, then the answer is yes. If it wasn't, then the answer is no. I mean, this is where I, where I say that I think this gets to a good way to analyze how we make attributions for other people's actions. So when we see an unwilling addict, we have some sympathy for them because we see that they're having tension between um, a second order and a first order uh, desire. They actually don't want to do drugs, but they're compelled to do drugs. They're not free. And so we have uh, some measure of sympathy. Um, and that's actually what my dissertation was about. We simply described people who acted upon an impulse and um, punched somebody in the face in a bar fight. Sure enough, people like think that's bad. <laughs> they blame you. But if you calmly, coolly planned to punch somebody in the face, people think that uh, you're more of an asshole and they blame you more. But what the Frankfurt part that came in was showing that the reason that people discounted blame for the impulsive puncher is that they assumed that that person had a second order desire not to punch, right? They lost control in the moment. Whereas, so they assumed an inconsistent hier hierarchical will. Um, the first order and second order uh, was in conflict. In the case of the person who deliberated to punch, um, people assumed that they were consistent, right? They had a second order desire to punch. They had a first order desire to punch the, that turned into the punch. And that's why people are more likely to ju judge them badly. And this, it seemed to us, could explain why in cases of praiseworthy action, you had an asymmetry. So if Tamler, you saw somebody, you were motivated so much by your empathic com compassion, you emptied your wallet to the, gave it to the homeless person right in front of you versus you planned this out. You're like, I really want to be a good person. I want to donate money. And I go and I find a homeless person. I give them all of that money. Uh, people didn't, they don't reduce the amount of praise for your empathic, compassionate, emotional act. And that we found was because we assume that you want to be that sort of person in, a, in an Aristotelian sense, like you actually have cultivated empathy. You want to be the sort of person who would donate money to a homeless person if you saw them suffering. If we told people that they had a conflicting second order desire that, damn it, I wish I wasn't such a sucker. I wish I wasn't so motivated um, by homeless people I walk by. Uh, I need to be more stoic and not you know, look in their eye and not feel sympathy. Then they reduced their praise because then that's just an unwilling, it's, it's like the case of an unwilling addict, except for you're addicted to compassion. Yeah, so but what's interesting, and I think different from what Frankfurt's talking about, at least where we've gotten to here. So you're pointing to an asymmetry between sort of blameworthy versus praiseworthy behavior. But the question for Frankfurt, at least at this point, has nothing to do with whether it's praiseworthy or blameworthy, or it's a question of whether one of those is a freer act than the other, or not even a freer act, because you, it's definitely a free act because you wanted to do it and you did it. It's the question is whether the person who 
gives money to the homeless person just out of the spontaneous empathy, is that freer than the person who gets into a bar fight because they have a spontaneous impulse of anger? And I, I wonder if you would have that same asymmetry um, in, in when you're asking about free free will rather than about moral right. responsibility. Right. That's a, it's a good question because we didn't ask that. And my intuition is that those are at least constructed to be the same, right? Like that our description uh, was such that people ought to say that these were both actions that were unfree. Um, what we thought was simply that people were judging you based on whether your higher order will endorsed it. So... Um, which is an idea that Frankfurt does. I remember if he refers to it here, but like you having some uh, committing a first order action that you, is clear that you had no freedom over, but endorsing it, saying like, yeah, but I like that I did that. That's that's kind of what we were looking for, and we think that the people were praising the second order desire to want to be compassionate. But yeah. that has, but the, it's the question is whether they would call that person freer. And maybe they would because they would assume that people reflectively endorse their good desires um, or good volitions um, rather than their bad volitions. But, but also maybe not. Maybe you might think if in both cases the person had either never reflected on it or reflected the other way, then it's not, then it's not free. It's not an act of free will. Even if it's, pra- it might still be praiseworthy, but it's not an act of free will. And this is something that he distinguishes um, later in the essay, right? The, that he thinks th- certain acts, you might do a certain action not of your own free will, but um, you might still be blameworthy or praiseworthy for it. it you know, so here's where the rubber meets the road. So the willing addict, he says, so he, he, he brings up this person who say like a Coke fiend, but just loves being a Coke fiend, you know, like they're just happy with it. It's their life choice, but they're also addicted to it. So if it wasn't their choice to be a Coke fiend, they still would be a Coke fiend. It just so happens that as they've reflected about it, they're happy with having that be their will. So this is something I honestly don't fully get. He gives this example as a way of showing how a willing addict might be morally responsible for their drug abuse, but not free because they're addicted. What's not totally clear to me is why the willing addicts isn't, doesn't have free will. So here's what he says about the willing addict. The willing addicts, this is on bottom of page 19, The willing addict's will is not free, for his desire to take the drug will be effective regardless of whether or not he wants this desire to constitute his will. But when he takes the drug, he takes it freely and of his own free will. So he says the willing addict's will is not free, but when he takes the drug, he takes it freely and of his own free will. I, I don't understand that distinction between their will is not free, but they are acting of their own free will when they take the drug. Is he trying to say that in that first order uh, desire that's kicking in when they're making the decision to to take the drug, that that is never free? Like they they are pulled by that first order desire. That's right because the will is always identical with your first effective first order desire. Yes. Right. But if he's willing, 
and he endorses that uh, his second order desire endorses that action he has it has made that taking of the drug free is that what he's saying he's it's made the but it's it's made it's it, made the action free well like no that. the action is free regardless because he ha, if he wanted to take it and he had it available to take it and so that's enough for freedom of action is you get to do what right. you want yeah, to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the question is, the wrong word. and this is, so the, it's free will because they were able to act in a way that they wanted to will. Right. It was consistent with, it was consistent with what they wanted to will. Yeah. It was consistent with their first, second order of volition. Right. But their will was not free, I guess, because it couldn't have been other like there is no way their will was not, they're physiologically addicted so there's no way their will wasn't going to be to to do the drug whether or not they endorsed it at the higher level but it is a weird thing to talk about the will not being free but when they act they act of their own free will it's very confusing we need he, he needs more words for it and he tries he really is trying to avoid the moral responsibility language here and i but I think that it is replete with latent moral re- concerns about moral resp- responsibility. Well, I think here he is not trying to avoid the question. He only brought up the willing addict because of the question of moral responsibility. So as I understand it, you can correct me if you read it this way. He, he says, all right, well, now that I've given you this conception of free will... I'm going to clear up a misconception, which is some people think that free will is necessary for moral responsibility or, um, and that somebody can only be morally responsible for their freely willed acts. And he says that's false because you can be morally responsible even when your will isn't free. And that's when he brings the willing addict into it. And the Frankfurt cases, which we're not going to talk about, are are perhaps examples of this too. That's the way in which he talks about moral responsibility. And note that he doesn't say, you know, what would be necessary or sufficient for moral responsibility. He just talks about one thing that he believes isn't necessary for moral responsibility. It's, and that's all that, that he gives us in this. Um, and I think the willing addict is in his example of somebody whose will is not free even though they act of their own free will, when it comes to taking the drug, their will is not free, but they are still morally responsible. Right. He sidesteps two things, right? The principle of alternate possibilities. He sa- I mean, th- he says you, it doesn't matter if the person could have done otherwise, right? Or in this case, could have willed otherwise. Yeah. Or could have willed otherwise. And he really sidesteps the, <laughs> the threat of causal determinism. He's like, well, that's that's... I don't think he sidesteps it. He just says it's not. Yeah, well, he, he just takes it down with one paragraph. Like he says, look, all actions are caused. Like that can't possibly be what makes somebody a free agent or not, or act freely or not. He just dismisses that as, as a potential threat to free will. I don't think he's just dismissing it as much as he's saying, look, if you are able to have the will that you want to have... And you're able to, you know, act in a way that you want to, that, that, you, that you want. That's just all the freedom that you could want or that you could desire or conceive of, right? And having this additional thing be like, but 
no, you're the unmoved mover. You're the cause of it. And there's no cause of, of you. That doesn't make you any freer. Like having it be magic instead of, you know, part of some process. Yeah. That's what I meant by dismissing this as, as an important feature of free will. But I, but I, like, I mean, I think he gives a little bit of an argument for, I don't think it's just like dismisses it. Uh, it's, it's the part that's dismissive, dismissive or even just sidestepped is anything to do with moral responsibility, I think. Yeah, I, the, no, when I said dismisses it, I actually didn't mean to imply that he didn't take care. I'm, I'm going to say that he took care of it. Like I have a underlined and good point where he's saying exactly what you said, that what does it matter that like your, the movement of your arm is a miracle. So, so is a rabbit's arm moving. Like it's the same kind of miracle. So it doesn't matter. It's dismissive in a good way. It's just saying in one paragraph, like stop it with all the causal determinism. Here's what I want to ask you. Like, you know, he, he, Frankfurt goes on to say, look, this could be a very, this can be a very simplistic understanding of the will. Like the hierarchies can be more complex and get higher and higher. For the true, per, for the person who truly believes that the de- determinism is the ultimate threat, does this do any work? Like, because you still have causes that cause second order desires that then either link up to first order desires or not. Like, is this, like a hardcore determinist will yeah. just be like, yeah, nice try. Well, not a hard, a hardcore incompatibilist. Will incompatibilist be. determinist, yeah. Yeah. So again, I think it matters what we're talking about. If we're talking about moral responsibility, then I, then I, it's not satisfying because maybe the willing addict, like maybe it's because, you know, of their how how they're wired, both from their DNA and also their environment and their upbringing and all of that and their experiences to not only be addicted to drugs, but to just want to embrace being addicted to drugs, right? And so why should you blame the willing addict more than you would blame uh, the unwilling addict? Because right. both uh, both of those things are ultimately determined by things that are outside of their control. So when it comes to moral responsibility, even though I'm a compatibilist, but not of this kind, it doesn't seem to be satisfying in answering incompatibilist objections to responsibility. But in terms of marking a distinction of an important kind of freedom to have, I think it is satisfying. Like, I I do want the freedom to be able to choose which of my desires are effective and not be held hostage to first order desires that I don't want to, that I don't want to be my will. Right. This is why I really like that this is framed as the concept of a person. Like we're like, he's primarily tackling what makes a person, whether he's successful at his compatibilism is less interesting to me what I do care about is that he is describing a feature of the human mind or the mind of any other being that is as complex as ours that really does distinguish us from just animals. We have, there, there is something that makes you, you in the way that your higher order and lower order desires interact. Like that is fundamentally the, the nature of our human life is this set of hierarchical goals that we have to deliberate like and we're obviously taking like very low level actions all day long in that sense we're like animals but these are all linked to some higher order uh desires and we are either failing 
or succeeding in in meeting, making those identify with each other, those higher order and lower orders identify with each other and be powerful and act, yeah. have volition in the world. Exactly. It's very good at, so for the people who say, well, you know, if determinism is true, we're just like animals. Like, no, there's a very significant way in which we're not like non-human animals because we have these capacities and these capacities are important. And again, whether they're important for moral responsibility is a separate question, but that they are important and distinct is, I think, undeniable. Right. Like it really, it really actually matters. And I mean, for me, it often matters in a moral sense, but it really matters if say the thing that you did, like if, if you lapsed back into addiction, even though you really, really didn't want to, but there was, you know, something happened uh, versus you just having this second order desire to like yeah. become an addict again. Like that matters. Like that shit actually matters to me. And, it, and, and it's right to say you're less free in the latter case than in, uh, I'm sorry, you're more free in the latter case if you just let yourself do it because you are fine with it. You're more free. Even if like you were probably going back to being a drug addict either way, just because the physiological addiction is so strong, there is a sense in which you're more free if you get to do the one that you identify with as this is who I want to be because you're allowed to have the will that you want to have. And there, I think there is something that is connected to freedom there. We also do deliberate about what kinds of second order desires we want to have. Like this is a lot of what, you know, what it means to... Sec- you think we deliberate over what second order desires we want to yeah, have? Yeah, we, we do say like, do I want to be the kind of person who does this? Like, But that's a f- um, deliberating over a first order desire, right? No, do I want to desire to exercise? Like, I want to be a person who desires exercise. Right. Right? Like, I would like to be the kind of person who wakes up at six and goes jogging. Right. Like, I, I can't get it. I, like, I can't do it, but I would like to be that. So in, in other domains, though, it might be more successful. I might be able to actually make myself somebody who is sympathetic to the IDW, like, by going and reading all the right things. And then my first order beliefs and desires can actually change that way. Right. I guess I would say you're still deliberating over whether you want to have the first order desire to exercise. You're not deliberating over you whether you want to have the second order desire to want to want to exercise or not. But maybe you are. I was thinking like when this goes to higher levels, it starts to get very confusing. Like you might a higher level deliberation to me, like say a third order is, do I want to be the kind of person that is so fully in control of their desires and, and who has that much self-control or do I want to be more of an impulsive person that sometimes they act in ways that they just wouldn't, you know, their second order desires wouldn't have endorsed that. But I want to be the kind of person that every once in a while, my passion and my, uh, just get the better of me. Or do I want to be the kind of person that is always in control of themselves? I actually, that's actually something that is, you might deliberate about, you know, but that to me is a l- deliberation at the third order, not about any individual desires, but about whether you want to be the kind of person who can always have the will that you want to have or not. That's also sort of interesting. But what he says is like, this is potentially endless, except that when you identify with a desire decisively, then that just ends the discussion. 
if you just say, I want to be like Ulrich and dark, I want to be a dog. I want to be constantly like chasing strange at every point and that's it. And I don't want to think about like whether I want to have that like anymore, like whether I want to have or not, like this is who I am. Then I think like that, that ends the discussion. And now if he, if he's able to act in the way that he wants, uh, that he wants, then he is, he has all the freedom of the will it's possible to want or conceive of. It's funny. He does, Frankfurt does nicely get out of what, what an annoying conceptual analysis would do, which is like, well, where does it stop? You can have more and more, you can have more and more loves, but he's like, but come on. But like, that doesn't happen, right? Like, <laughs> it's not turtles all the way up. Like, it's actually like two or three turtles. And then that fat turtle at the top just determines everything. <laughs> or you can be a turtle at a lower level that determines it just by your decisive commitment to it. So what are you decisively committed to that would constitute you, your personhood in this? Well, so like, I don't know, being somebody who, who will try to liven up a conversation with jokes, dirty jokes, whatever, you know, like that's something that I typically want to do. Glad I do it. Glad I want to do that. Glad I can do it sometimes. And I just don't have any further, like, I don't need to keep deliberating about it. Like it's just who I am and it's done. And so when I, when I can do that, because it's back to the IDW, but what they're saying is for those kind of people right now have to live in fear that they're going to be canceled at every moment. I don't think that's true. And so I both have freedom of the will when it comes to that on Frankfurt's account and also freedom of action. It's funny because I, like you, um, have always liked to say shit to stir things up and, you know, make, make life less boring from everything from like, you know, talking out in class when I was younger to committee meetings at Cornell, make cracking jokes. But I used to feel like, like it was, I was a wanton person in that regard that I couldn't help myself, but say things. So I would get in trouble often in junior high and elementary for talking out of turn for making jokes. And I, I felt like I, I just couldn't help myself. And then over time, I nurtured the second order desire to be that kind of person in a way that just, according to Frankfurt, I think, made me go from an unfree person to a free person, just, but with my actions themselves not changing. And assuming you weren't, you're not addicted to it, then... You know, so that if you changed your mind at the second order, like, wait, I want to be a more sensitive person and I'm willing to just have another fucking boring conversation where nobody says anything remotely, like, interesting or worthwhile. Like, assuming you, if you had that shift in second order, you could make it effective, then, then you're just as free as anyone could possibly be when it comes to that. Interestingly, though, if you never test that out, like... You know, for Frankfurt, if you never really, yeah, you might never really know. So you're still free. And again, we're not getting into Frankfurt cases, but those I think do become kind of interesting. <laughs> so here's, if I have a criticism of this account of free will, it's, I think he gives good accounts of success stories where everything aligns perfectly. But what about in cases where you don't, that's not what happens. So say, going back to my example of the the drink, right? What about the case where, ah, you know, I would really like to be able to sit down and, and 
read without always thinking, God, you know, a bourbon would be nice to have with this. And then, because, you know, it fucks up, it makes you drink more and it fucks up your concentration sometimes. I want to be the kind of person that doesn't, that doesn't do that. So let's say I, I have that second order desire, but I'm not able to make it a f- the, the, the desire effective. I, I still always do it. I still always go get the drink when I read. According to Frankfurt, my will isn't free there. And I'm not sure that's totally true, right? I'm thinking maybe I still have free will when it comes to that. I, maybe I, my second order desire just isn't quite strong enough, you know? But it's not something that is really diminishing my capacity for, for free will at that point. It's just I need to have a stronger second order desire when it comes to that than I currently have, and I just don't. And it's not because I have a competing second order desire to not do that. It's just because, you know, like I, maybe I don't think it's as big a deal as I should or maybe I... So in other words, I guess what I'm saying is when it comes to saying that a certain act is free, this account does well. When it comes to saying that a certain act is not free, I think it becomes a lot more complicated. Or not an act is not free, we keep doing this, uh, that a person's will is not free. I think there it becomes, you know, a little dicier to say when somebody doesn't act according to the will that they want to have, is it because they lack free will or is it because of something else? Because the, the, the addict is, that's just, that's just a strong case. But the person who's not necessarily addicted, but just doesn't like, or, you know, like, it's not that you couldn't make yourself love X, want to go to the gym four times a week. You probably could. If you really set your mind to it, you really could. But maybe you just don't want to be that person, you know, strongly enough. Even if you want to be that person to, to, to a significant degree. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're so... so- I don't know. I mean, I get Frankfurt's intuition that you're still not free. Like you, there is no, unless there's evidence that you sometimes are able to affect your desire to not have a drink. But if you never can, like you're always like, kind of want to be a person who goes to the gym four times a day, but I've never done it. Then I'd be like, well, maybe you're just like not quite so clear as to how much like a drug addict you really are. Or a not going to the gym addict. <laughs> yeah. But I guess the the issue is what about those times where it's maybe there have been times in your life where you have gone to the gym regularly and now you're not. But it's been like three years, four years since you've done that regularly. You've been trying to get yourself to go back for the last couple and it just hasn't it hasn't worked. Is that because you don't have free will or is that just because other things like that that get in the way of it or that your desire is not as strong as it once used to be or um, but I get what you're saying also that sometimes these things these habits are stronger than you think they have more of a control over you than you think that they have but how much your second order desire kicks in every time you pour yourself a bourbon does like I don't know what it says about free will but like expanding it says something about you that's interesting and um, that you're not the sort of person who either has embraced the second order desire to always have a bourbon and you're not the sort of person who's wanton, who just like mindlessly drinks bourbon. You are the sort of person who is worried about their health or whatever. And free will or not, I think that's the kind of interesting question we can ask about people. When you lose your temper and you do something wrong, are you like we, we, we've seen all these like social media videos of people like losing their shit and like saying crazy things. Was that just one time or 
did they cultivate a life in which they, <laughs> they just let themselves like yell at people because because that like kind of matters, you know? Right. And I think Frankfurt in later work talks about ambivalence, which sort of describes what you're talking about, like with the bourbon thing. It might be that partly you are you you are ambivalent at the second order. Like partly you're like, hey, just have a fucking drink and read your thing. You like it. It's fun. Like it's not that big a deal. You're healthy. You're like you're not breaking shit around the house and beating your wife and child. You just like to have a drink. You've conquered Dostoevsky. Like, what's the big deal? And then there's another part is like, yeah, but enough with all this, you know, it's not good for you in the long run, you know, like, so you could be ambivalent about it in a way that I don't think really speaks to your freedom as much as it speaks to something about you as a person, as you say, which is a a conflict at the second order. I'd make a character judgment about like, which, which desires won out over time. You know, like which second order desires you cultivated successfully. If you always let yourself be pulled by bourbon, like upon reflection, you decided that that's the kind of person you want to be. Again, I I think that that I would give you more moral responsibility than somebody who is just raised drinking bourbon from the bottle. But I mean, again, that's moral responsibility. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where this account is, you know, it's potentially useful. And I think certain people have found it to be the cornerstone of their conception of moral responsibility. But that's when the regress concerns really kick in because you have to start asking questions about why you have the second order desires or volitions that you have. And we haven't even talked about this, but I think that this is a way in which people talk about implicit attitudes. I don't know that they ever explicitly endorse Frankfurt, but there is a lay view of the hierarchical will that says, hey, you know, it's not you like who hates black people. It's just you in this small sense. You in this big sense, clearly you don't want to be racist. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You just read White Fragility. (laughs) (laughs) Or this other list of books that people are compiling to like raise your kid (laughs) non-racist. Oh God. That stuff. I want to be the kind of person that doesn't do that as a way of making your kid not racist, but instead like actually has them hang out with people of different (laughs) races. It's (laughs) It's such a, it's like such a bad proxy. Like, of course, of course that's the white intellectual solution to the problem. Like give your kid a list of these books rather than actually maybe take them to playgrounds where like there's other Yeah. Live in neighborhoods where like (laughs) Uh, or or like virtual reality uh, (laughs) where you can interact with black people safely. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be the next big thing. (laughs) And and that'll do it for this podcast. Dave thinks the only way you can interact with black people safely is virtual reality. (laughs) No, but like that's probably what the police are using to train, you know? Yeah. No, I know. You you could see that coming on the horizon. <laughs> yeah. And then you would be judged by like which apps you had on your virtual reality device. <laughs> you're only on level you're only on level three of woke. <laughs> My kid's at level nine. <laughs> My kid asks people their pronouns before they even start talking. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> Uh, do you have anything more to say about the essay? No, I really like it. I, I I really like it. I like it. I like it way more than his on bullshit. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. This is like an important, you know, as somebody who's skeptical of sometimes flaw, this is important um, in a way that I think I'm, all, I'm bullshit very really glad isn't. to see. I'm very glad to see that you think of some philosophy is important. <laughs> I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's fun to go back. You know, there's obviously so much secondary literature on this, but a lot of that's faded from my memory. And so really just reading this with fresh eyes was uh, was nice. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.